Personally, I've never had a fear of flying. In fact, I really like it. I'm not sure if it's the flying itself, or maybe it's the fact that the flying just means I'm probably going somewhere to see people or have fun. But I've never had that feeling like, oh, what if the plane just falls from the sky and we all die? I don't think I've ever worried about that. Which might be kind of odd, since I do have a fear of heights, but that only started after I fell off a roof. But that's another story. And if you're on a flight and you're sitting next to someone who's just terrified, it doesn't really matter if you tell them how safe it is to fly in an airplane. I mean, there are around 100,000 flights that happen every single day all around the world. There's really nothing to be afraid of. But what if you're on a flight and there actually is cause for concern? Like the pilot sees a thunderstorm up ahead that you'll be flying through Or maybe something's not working right on the plane, and he makes the announcement that the plane might be in trouble. That would probably scare most people. That's what happened on a commercial flight from Phoenix to Dallas a couple of years ago. The pilot didn't say what the problem was specifically, but he came over the intercom and gave the passengers the instructions to brace for impact. This is the actual audio from that flight. You will need to be seated in a brace position for landing. To brace, place your feet flat on the floor, cross your wrist, and hold on to the seat back in front of you. Rest your hand, hands on your wrists. For those passengers seated in a forward row, that's row one and row four, place your feet flat on the floor. Bend over, place your face in your lap, put your arms under your legs, and grasp your elbow. Brace. Ladies and gentlemen, air should, air, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, the first officer. Uh, please remain seated while we uh, take a look at the uh, issue we have up here in the cockpit. No need for alarm. Just remain calm, and we'll get back to you here as soon as we know more. Thank you. Fortunately, the pilot was able to land that plane safely and no one was injured. But I'm guessing a few prayers went up and some phone calls were probably made to loved ones. Can you imagine how happy those passengers must have been when they finally felt the wheels touch down on the runway and they knew they were safe? My conversation today is with Matt. Matt is a licensed airplane pilot. And there was one day when he was flying a small plane, and it was just him, no passengers. He took off, got up to cruising altitude, and for a while everything seemed fine. What Matt didn't know was, that plane would never touch down on an airport runway again. Real People in Unreal Situations There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My 
friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. Was this plane, the plane that you were flying that day, was it owned by you, or was it a rental, or company-owned, or... I was pilot in command of my own aircraft when I crashed over the remote forest of Quebec. Now, the average person doesn't own their own plane. Is this a, a business, or... I mean, I understand your your primary business is something to do with flight training. Is that correct? It is today. You know, that's an outcome from this crash, actually. Um, flying's been a passion of mine, starting when I was a child, flying with my father. But at the time of the crash, I was working as an executive for an iron ore company that was a, had an operation in Labrador, Canada. And so my professional career up to that point was predominantly as an entrepreneur in the mining space. But since this crash, I've uh, worked hard to take my passion of aviation and and education as well, and then I've been a flight instructor since then. So the flight that day was it originated in Newfoundland? Is that right? That morning it did. It was really the culmination of a business trip that started a few days earlier in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Um, it was a beautiful time of year to fly. I remember the flight from northern Minnesota to Labrador, which is part of the province of Newfoundland was a wonderful trip, uh, included a stop in Duluth, Minnesota, where I happened to be there while the Blue Angels were there and met some of those pilots. I flew then to North Bay, Ontario, and then on to Wabush, uh, which is in Labrador. So flying over very remote terrain, but it was particularly good weather and beautiful terrain. And then uh, had business meetings for a few days there in Wabush. And then I was on my flight back home. The flight itself was uh, from uh, Wabush to Quebec City for, for refueling. Then I was going to continue on to the Midwest of the United States from there. And how long of a flight was this or, or expected to be? This was expected to be a two-hour flight from Wabush Airport in Labrador to the Quebec City International Airport in, in Quebec. Is it standard to check engines before every flight? Or what kind of pre-flight check do you have uh, as far as mechanical things? Having your own airplane, you have an advantage where, you know, you're really responsible and, and, and intimate to everything that happens to it. So in the case of this plane, for me, it was maintained 
meticulously. It was a higher time engine, and that's partly why it was undergoing engine checks and the maintenance that it was on. The typical checks involve you know, oil changes every 25 hours. We would include oil analysis at every oil change. We would do compression checks on the cylinders and bore scopes of the cylinders every time just to catch any sort of anomaly each time that you have the, uh, the engine visible. And then that's your inner uh, intermittent maintenance. But before every flight, there's a pre-flight. So you, you check the entire airplane over. You check your oil. Um, you check your fuel. You check to make sure there's no water in the fuel. And then in this particular aircraft, it, is a, it was a modern aircraft that had a full uh, engine monitoring system on it. So I could see the cylinder temperature, exhaust gas temperature, oil pressure, fuel flow of that engine. Now, one mistake that I tell my students and I tell other pilots that I made in this particular flight, particularly over remote terrain, is I was not performing my what we call scans. I wasn't scanning the engine instruments as often as I could. And I may have had as much as five to 10 minutes in between my last scan. And so I don't really know, you know, when I saw the anomalies, if they had just happened or if they could have been going on for five or 10 minutes earlier. And so it's an error in judgment and performance that I try to use as a teaching moment for, for students of mine, because potentially that could have given me a more advantageous outcome than where I ended up crashing. Just walking through the flight, it was an, it was a it was another beautiful day, a pretty warm day, which is quite rare that far north. It's a pretty pretty northern spot. No wind, clear skies. Did the pre-flight, took off, plane was performing as normal. Leveled off at 8,000 feet and uh, was in my cruise flight to intersect a waypoint on the St. Lawrence River, the St. Lawrence Seaway, and then I was going to make a right-hand turn to the southwest to follow the waterway into Quebec City. And I was only about 30 minutes into the flight when I looked up to do my scan, and I saw that my uh, my oil temperature and pressure were significantly off. The plane was still performing normal, sounding normal, but I, I'd flown that plane enough. I knew something was drastically wrong as soon as I saw that. <laughs> Human nature is there's a delay involved. You, you kind of want to not believe what you're seeing. You don't have the luxury of denial for very long. Not right? for very long. Exactly. So a little bit of delay. And then I quickly um, radioed air traffic control. I was in radio contact the whole time and told them I had an engine issue. I needed to divert to the nearest airport. I was quickly running calculations in my head with the wind aloft direction to see, is it closer to return to where I came from or do I need to go a different way? And the fastest pathway or the fa the quickest time was actually to divert to Setil, which is uh, means seven islands in French. It's a, a significant city that's on the St. Lawrence. It was farther away from where Wabush, the airport I originated from, was at, but I had a tailwind. So if I would have turned around, it would have taken me longer. So that's what I was doing immediately, letting air traffic control. I needed to divert. Then their next question is, okay, where do you want to divert to? And I was running the calculations quickly in my head. What would be the quickest time? And unfortunately, uh, my closest option was still about 25 minutes away. I think deep down intellectually, I knew I probably didn't have 25 minutes, but the plane was still performing. So I was fixated on the engine instruments, watching them to see if they're going to tick in the right direction or stabilize. And probably a minute later, my temperature ticked up higher, my pressure ticked down lower. And that's when I think reality hit that I, I did not for sure have 25 minutes to go. And so the next action I took was to take out the, the charts and I started studying uh, what type of terrain I had in front of me. Um, I was in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And in, for anyone that's been into Quebec, 
It's a beautiful place as well. Very beautiful, but they have massive reservoirs. And they have a huge hydroelectric power system. So you have lots of extremely large bodies of water. And even at that time of the year, the water temperature is quite cold. So my immediate concern was if I'm going to go down, I don't want to go down in the middle of a big lock, big lake, because um, getting to shore, hypothermia, losing, uh, more importantly, the survival equipment that I had, both electronic and practical, I knew that it'd be, it'd be over for me if I went down in a, in a water reservoir. And so we were, we were going along and the airplane went from, besides the engine instruments looking bad, performing normally, it went instantaneously to a catastrophic failure of the engine. A huge, loud grinding noise. At that point, you know, I'm traveling 180 miles an hour through the air. So the air has enough force to keep the propeller rotating, but it's very noisy. It's grind, mechanical grinding, screeching, lots of vibration. So um, you have a moment of denial there as well. There, you know, there's a you freeze for a moment for sure. But the first thing they teach you at, when you're becoming a pilot is fly the airplane first. Don't lose control of the airplane. Some people think you lose an engine, an airplane falls out of the sky. That's not the case. Uh, airplanes are really just gliders with an engine on the front of them, and every airplane glides differently. So as long as you control the airplane, you can have uh, some amount of control within a distance of where you're going to go down. So the engine failed. I'm focused on gliding the airplane, flying the airplane. I noticed that I had a big water reservoir right in front of me, and I had a tailwind behind me. So the first thing I started to do was execute a 180-degree turn so that I didn't get blown into the water reservoir. At the same time, I was talking over the radio, mayday, and declaring an emergency that I had engine failure, that I was going down. I was managing the avionics to be able to quickly bring up the GPS coordinates. Uh, at that moment in time, my biggest concern was being rescued. I, I figured I was probably going to get down safely because I was flying an airplane with a ballistic parachute on it. But I was really worried about being uh, rescued in time. So I really wanted them to know my exact coordinates. And then uh, at the same time, I had a, uh, a satellite messaging phone and GPS that was portable. I was, while I'm flying the plane and trying to talk on the radio, work the avionics, I was trying to stuff this, let's call it a large kind of Zach Morris cell phone that, uh, you know, a large flip phone for, um, we all know what those look like, and how big they are <laughs> compared to the modern iPhones. But it, I was trying to get that in my pants pocket, basically. And so uh, all those things were happening simultaneously as I was executing a 180-degree turn to try to get back over the wilderness and the woods versus uh, be over the water. You mentioned that the plane has a parachute. How do you know when to deploy that parachute? When to deploy the parachute. That's, a, that's also a very important topic that's tr part of the training in flying this type of airplane because if you're too low and you pull the parachute, there's not enough time for the parachute to inflate. If you're too high, and if you have a hazard, in my case, I had this water reservoir that I wanted to avoid, as soon as you pull a parachute, you lose control of the airplane, and you're, you're gliding where Mother Nature, you're, you're falling where Mother Nature's taking you, where the wind is taking you. So for me, it was a calculation I was doing. I, I didn't want to pull too high and get blown into the water. I didn't want to pull too low and crash uh, in the ground. So I waited until I felt like I was far enough away from the shoreline of this reservoir, but yet still high enough to pull it. Um, I decided to pull the chute at about 2,500 feet above the ground. And what happens when you pull the parachute, it's actually rocket propelled. So I pull it. Uh, instantly, it, it sounded literally just like a large firework going off, and it smelled like, like a large firework. I could smell the sulfur and the fuel. And then 
you know, I was probably traveling about 110 miles an hour at that point, and it felt just like uh, imagine going down the freeway at 90 miles an hour and slamming on the brakes in a sports car as fast as you can. That was the type of deceleration I had, and everything in the airplane that wasn't secured flew to the front of the airplane. The first phase of the parachute deployment, you're you're looking straight down at the ground. So the nose of the airplane straight down as the parachute is deploying and as what they call the line cutters are cutting some of the lines to bring the airplane back horizontal. So you're sitting there uh, looking at the ground for probably five seconds and then you flip up back to a horizontal pitch attitude where I'm now looking basically at the this horizon of trees uh, starting to come at me. And the descent rate with that parachute is about... 25 miles an hour. So I, it was since I pulled the parachute at 2,500 feet. When I went horizontal, I could see the tree line coming at me. I was probably 500 to 1,000 feet above the trees at that moment. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut. With Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic, go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what 
or going to cookunity.com slash what. So from the time you pulled the chute until you hit land, how much time had passed? Probably 25 seconds uh, or so, if I had to guess. And, uh, you know, probably 15 seconds from when I became horizontal and saw the trees coming at me to when I was on the ground. And it was a, that was a, a very long 15 seconds, as you can imagine. One thing that I still don't know why I was doing it, and it's, it's, it ended up being a, a miracle that I wasn't killed when I fell, is I, uh, for some reason, I kept looking out the front of the airplane. You know, normally when you fly a small plane like this and you want to see the ground, you look out to the side of the airplane. So I'm a I was on the captain, the, the you know driver's side of the airplane, and normally I'd be looking out the side window down at the ground if I wanted to see the ground. In this case, I just kept looking out the front, and I don't know why. But had I not done that, I would have been killed on the impact because as soon as I'm looking out the front, the top, the tips of the trees are getting closer and closer. And as soon as I started dipping the tree line, there was just a massive, just boom, just an explosion of bark uh, in the airplane. And I could see out of the very periphery of my eye, just some very quick movement up, you know, to my left, like right in front of my shoulder. And then a moment later impacted the ground. And at that point, I was just focused on getting out of the plane uh, and avoiding an explosion or fire. So I just unbuckled my seatbelt, jumped out. And as I got away from the plane and looked back at it, I could see there was a massive tree that came right through the bottom of the plane, right through the pilot side footwell. And the next thing I did is I looked down at my leg to see if there was an injury, and I was actually bleeding uh, minorly. It wasn't a serious injury, but the, the tree had come through the bottom of the plane, and it was it had actually cut my leg. So any half an inch or an inch in either direction, best case, I would have been cut seriously and bled to death, or uh, worst case, I would have been instantly impaled in a, in a bloody, mangled mess when the, when the rescuers would have come there to find the plane. I imagine you've thought about that many times. How close you came there. Yeah, absolutely. Many times. And each time I think about it, it it's a reminder. And, and uh, I'm overcome with gratitude just to, to be alive because I came literally, you know, millimeters from, from dying in the woods. I would have preferred to actually be impaled. I've thought about, you know, what would have been better. Instant death would have been way better because of slow death by yourself, lonely, uh, with no one around. Uh, I couldn't imagine how horrible that would have been. Is it possible that, that tree slowed the fall of the plane to the ground? Oh, 100% or it did. Or did you still hit pretty hard? No, I hit very gently, actually. So I probably went from you know, 25 miles an hour to hitting the ground at 5 miles an hour. So I had no whiplash, nothing. It was actually a pretty gentle ride down. Described it previously. It's like a you know soggy meatball, a toothpick through a soggy meatball. It just kind of went right through, rode it right down. Man, I can tell you what, Scott, the sight, when I, when I hop out of the plane and look back... And I saw that tree sticking right through the plane. I could still see my avionics were turned on. I could still hear the hum of the avionics. And I was just by myself. That's when I had the first real moment of anxiety, I'd say. Up until that point, I was just purely focused on what was in front of me, tunnel vision. And uh, as I look back at the plane, um, I started feeling around in my pocket for this GPS that I was trying to put in my pocket that I felt was my lifeline. And... It wasn't in my pocket. And that, and that, that moment uh, it was when I really had the first kind of wave of terror and fear that I may not get out of there. Yeah, without that, how do you tell anyone where you are? Even if you knew where you are, roughly, somebody else has to find you, unless you're going to walk out. No, that's exactly right. And, and even 
this particular summer, about a year and a half ago, there were actually quite a few crashes in Quebec, unfortunately. And in many cases, uh, if a plane goes down in remote territory, even if it's in radar contact, that radar contact is not extremely precise. And when you're in extremely dense forest and you have, let's say, a general area of where a plane is, in many cases, it took people days and days, weeks to find these crash planes. So my view was if I didn't have a way to communicate with anybody, best case, several days, worst case, weeks. And given the heat, given pretty dehydrated to start the day as it was, I didn't think I'd have a few days um, and, and just come to dehydration, if nothing else. So that was, that was as, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, later, really the, the, the moment of peak, peak fear and terror was when I didn't have that GPS in my pocket. I didn't, you know, I didn't know if it fell out of the plane, if it was destroyed by the tree, if you know, it was under the wing. I could, as I'm looking back at the plane, I can see the fuel gushing out. You know, is it underneath the wing getting doused by fuel? That's where I was the most scared. A lot of people, I would imagine, in, in that particular situation would just go into shock and not know what to do or just not do anything. It sounds like you still had your wits about you. Had you had survival training at all prior to this? I had not had a survival training, but I had had a pre one previous in-flight incident, emer emergency actually. It, it ended up resulting in me landing the airplane just fine, but it was an emergency I declared uh, a year or two earlier. And I knew from that experience that there's two ways a person can kind of react. You know, it, it's 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 the same fight or flight syndrome that everyone faces when they're in this. And in the case of flying an airplane, the the flight syndrome is when people freeze. So you read about people taking off and something happens and they kind of had time to do something, but they don't. They lock up. You know, that's really flighting it. Or, or fighting it is is just what what I was doing both in the case of my previous emergency and in this case where there's a little freezing, but still a lot of anxiety, a lot of terror, but but thinking through the sequence of what you have to do and kind of fighting the scenario and, and fighting it in a way that you're trying to problem solve it. When I realized that GPS was not my pocket, I had a wave of terror that I had to fight back from basically being paralyzed and freezing. I fought it off and tried to think, what do I do next? Because my instant reaction was to just run back to the plane, start looking at it. But I knew that the fuel was spilling everywhere. I could smell it. And the electronics were still on. I had not turned off the electronical systems, which I should have done. That's part of an emergency checklist, but I didn't get that done with everything happening. So I was very concerned about an explosion or a fire. And so I forced myself to take a few minutes and just think about the situation. You know, do I need to rush back to the plane right now? Does it make a difference? If the GPS is destroyed, it's not going to make a difference if I go back now or if I wait a few minutes to let the rest of the fuel run out and let the, the electrical system start to die down. So it was hard, but I was able to force myself to problem solve the situation. And I ended up waiting five to 10 minutes just to let the rest of the fuel spill out of the wings. And then I made the determination to start walking back to the plane and look for the GPS. I went back to the plane and I was fortunate to find the GPS sitting on the seat. So it was like, it's no different than your cell phone falling out of your pocket in a car. I went back to the plane and the, there it is. It's just sitting right there on the pilot side seat. So I went from, you know, terror and trying to manage the paralyzing fear to feeling almost like a million bucks, you know, like I'd won the lottery. It took me some effort to, I had to climb up a hillside to find an opening, but I was able to get to a spot where I could start messaging. And I was pretty quickly in contact with 
search and rescue and air traffic control. And I was able to, to basically text message my coordinates and let them know that I had an SOS. At that point, uh, that's when I took my iPad out and I started vlogging, basically. I don't actually know exactly what I was thinking, why I did it. I think what thoughts got me going on it was this is going to be a crazy thing to document and be able to share with people in terms of some positive learning that can come out of it. And then that's initially why. But as the day went on, it also became quite therapeutic just while you're sitting there by yourself in the woods all day. I didn't have a volleyball of Wilson to keep me company. I had my iPad to vlog the thing. And that's exactly the image that came when you said that. That's what that's the image came to my mind. Wilson, Tom Hanks. He had, you know, he had somebody to talk to. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, afterwards, when I could digest and I had experienced the full rescue, I, I really wanted to put something together to uh, to give thanks to the search and rescue teams and, and give them credit for uh, what they did. So I got to see it firsthand. You know, you hear about all these things, but when you get to see it and your life is in people's hands and they, they step up and save your life, I, I wanted to spend the time to put a video together to give them thanks and, and highlight their efforts. So what did you have? What was your inventory as far as supplies for being able to survive and, and uh, have somebody come and find you? They, they weren't sufficient. Part of my lessons learned, I, I, had, I had like one bottle or one and a half bottles of water, and that was it. And that was the biggest issue. At, at this point in the game, I've already I've, I've crashed. It's hot outside. It's July. I've had to hike through the forest up a hillside to text message let's say an hour went by where I could finally sit down and, and take an inventory of where I was at. I was just dripping with sweat. I mean, and I was already as thirsty as I could ever imagine in a normal circumstance that you're ever thirsty. Uh, I was already feeling that way an hour in. And so water was a major issue. That's the negative. That's, that's my biggest mistake. The second thing is I wasn't dressed for the occasion. I mean, when I got out of the plane, I, I still remember I, had, I was flying in shorts and flip-flops. I had one flip-flop on and the other flip-flop was gone because I, I could remember feeling the moss, you know, kind of like a Star Wars forest bed. I could feel the soft moss on my feet and I was in flip-flops. I wasn't prepared to be stuck in the woods, you know. So I was also very conscious because I had to basically crawl through this thick bed of getting a cut, just a simple, you know, serious cut on my foot or something like that that could be my demise. So... I was not prepared at all to be flying over that train. And what got me out was, I guess those are the bad things. The good things I had with me was a survival kit. I had the GPS messenger, obviously. I had the, I had a kit to, uh, to start a fire, which I ultimately had to use to create smoke signals so I could be found. And I had to basically dig into my luggage to cover myself head to toe. I didn't have a bug net. I should have had a bug net. The, the insects, I can't even describe how bad the bugs were. I mean, it was flies on shit. I mean, it was, I was, I was, it was, imagine that, that was me. I was covered head to toe with bugs. I mean, every inch of my body covered. And that probably could have been a demise of somebody just from an allergic reaction from the, you know, hundreds of bites that you're getting. So I had to crawl my luggage out of the plane, break it open and basically make use to create a bug barrier as well. How far were you from any city or town? Were you in any kind of flight path where they, where somebody might notice you by chance? I was probably 60 nautical miles from the nearest human. In fact, I, I joke with people, I don't think an, a, a human being had ever been where I was at. I mean, it was extremely remote. For anyone to, uh, any search and rescue to get over me, it took a period of time, even after my text messages where the first uh, turbine air, aircraft was just circling above trying to find me. I had my messenger, so I'm texting, and they're saying, we 
think we know where you are, but we actually still can't see you. Now, keep in mind, they, they had actually received my exact GPS coordinates from my GPS at this point, and this aircraft is circling overhead. There's an airplane with a parachute that's in the trees, and the forest was so dense they could not locate me. It was a helpless feeling. I'm sitting there seeing this airplane circle above me, and I'm looking at my messenger, and they keep saying they're not, they haven't spotted me yet, they haven't spotted me yet. That's when I decided to go back and get the kit and start a fire. Right, because the smoke would rise up above the trees, and obviously they could see that. Yeah, exactly. Who was it you actually contacted for rescue? So I'd say another lesson learned on the positive side that, that I use in teaching students is on several flights earlier, I'd used the messenger to test it while I was in the air. So I, I worked with air traffic control to figure out, okay, if I'm on the ground, who do I contact? And it actually ended up being a pretty obscure email address that I used for the messaging. That was my first point of contact was to Canadian Air Traffic Control via an email address that they had given me. Little did I know that that email went to a desk with a person sitting in Montreal. That was my first message. The second message was uh, was to my father to let him know that I was on the ground and that I wasn't seriously injured. A fear in the back of my mind was was thinking about my wife and my family hearing that I'd crashed and then the uncertainty of whether or not I was alive, was I injured, was I uninjured. So that was actually back up an hour. Those are the first few messages I sent. So they contacted and coordinated with the Royal Air Force of, of Canada. So they had an initial search and rescue. The initial airplane came from close, from more nearby. That was the one circling over that couldn't see me. And then they were coordinating with a SAR group, which is search and rescue technicians out of Halifax, Nova Scotia. And uh, the, that was the team that ultimately scaled down from the helicopter and pulled me out of the woods from Halifax. And so, yeah, it was the Canadian Royal Air Force. How long from the time you crashed until you actually got rescued? From the time I crashed until I got rescued, um, I believe it was, I think I crashed at like 9.25 in the morning. And I think I was rescued about 3.30 in the afternoon. What do you do for six hours? I mean, after you've contacted someone to tell them, and then, then you just wait. How do you fill that time? Yeah, you sit and wait. In my, in my case, I did a lot of praying, did a lot of reflecting. It, you know, it was actually, it was a pretty peaceful time for me, that time in between. At this point, I had been in contact with people. I had taken care of the bugs. I was covered head to toe in clothing. So my only discomfort at that point was I was just extremely, extremely thirsty and extremely dehydrated. But I, um, I found a, a shade on the hillside, and I just kind of laid back and just listened to the wind and the leaves, watched the sunlight coming through the leaves, uh, listened to the, the different birds and animals, and I uh, was just sitting back, waiting and reflecting and trying to figure out you know, what this all meant for my life. At that point, I, had, I just had 100% faith that I was going to get pulled out within a matter of hours at that point. And so... The, the crash started with pure terror. At that point, it was, it was actually uh, quite peaceful. Can you describe the actual rescue process when they finally found you? Yeah, it was, it was incredible. Incredible. These people, are, these people are just incredible. It started with a, a Hercules aircraft flying over at low altitudes. It was awesome. Imagine I'm in the, I'm in the middle of nowhere, and I have a message saying that the first phase is coming. I don't really know what that means. And I'm laying back uh, in the shade under the trees, and I can just hear the rumble of an airplane coming. And it just, heart starts pounding, start getting excited. Don't really know what they're going to do. And you just, you hear it getting closer, closer, closer. And then 
instantly they're on top of you. And they, they must've flown 50 feet above the treetops. I mean, it was crazy. It was just right over, right over my head. They did a pass and I could see the back of the air, of the transport aircraft was open. You could see people with lanyards hanging out the back, trying to basically visually spot me. And so I'm up there waving my hands and screaming like that would have made any difference. And then they, they went out, they did a 180 and came back, did another pass and did, I think a few more passes. And all of a sudden they did a pass and I saw a bunch of things get thrown out of the back of the plane and float down on little parachutes. And one of them landed probably a hundred yards from me. That was the closest one. And I could hear it beeping through the woods. And then I got a message on the test message to say that they dropped a radio. You need to go get the radio. At this point, like I said, I was just waiting and it was a peaceful time, a prayerful time, but I was extremely dehydrated. So, and I was on a, a pretty steep hillside and it's very, very thick brush. And on top of that, I knew that every time I moved, um, I was at risk of cutting myself because I was bare, I was barefooted basically. I actually had socks on, but I was you know, in the, effectively barefoot. And so I, I had no choice. I started hiking down the hillside towards the, the, the loud noise. And I got there. It took me probably 25 minutes because it, it was really thick. It, what's interesting, along the way, I actually found a piece of the airplane. So there, there's a cover that covers the parachute. I actually came across it in the woods, the cover that covered the parachute in that whole open area. I happened to walk right across it in that wilderness. And that that's something that fell from the sky when you were still at, up there. At 8,000 feet. It fell somewhere at 8,000 feet with 30 knot winds. And it happened to land right exactly where I walked across it to find the radio. Did that turn out to be an interesting souvenir? It's a, oh yeah, it's up in my, it's, it's going to be a wall piece uh, for the rest of my life for sure. So I came across the radio and I, I'm hearing the beeping. I get closer to it and all I can hear is, Matt, Matt, do you read? Matt, do you read? And there's the person, uh, Matt, Matt, do you read? Do you read? Do you copy? And that was just, I could hear it as I was getting closer and closer uh, to the radio. And, and then I uh, came on the radio and started talking to him and told him, boy, it's, it's nice to hear someone else's voice. So that, that was the first phase of the rescue. Uh, from that point, he gave me instructions. He said, look, I need you to uh, hike back up to where you were and just stay put. We have the helicopters coming to get you and he'll be here in two hours. I'm like, two hours? <laughs> I, at this point, I'm thinking, shit, I, I, thought, I thought you guys were going to somehow figure out how to get me uh, with something popping out of the back of the plane. So he said, don't, but don't worry, we're, we're going to just circle above you for two hours. So you're going to be able to talk to me and, and we'll be in contact the whole time. So I, so I just went back to the hillside to where all my stuff was and laid back down, tried to relax. Tried, I was really trying to control my sweating because I knew I was, you know, it was hot. So I was trying to limit my water loss. And, um, they couldn't have tossed down a bottle of water or something. Yeah, exactly. I, it, I joked about that when I, when they pulled me up, actually, I, no, I told them on the radio, I said, this radio is nice, but you guys couldn't have thrown some water on a parachute. At that point, you, you, your sense of humor kicks right back in. You're talking to somebody and you know that the rescue's coming. And I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people that have gone through very, very traumatic stuff. Um, so at this point I feel even bad talking about it as a, as a, as a sad or traumatic story, because at this point I was I was really just in pure joy, despite the, the dehydration. I was just pure joy that I knew the the, the end was near. So uh, two hours later, the uh, helicopter shows up and they they pull up. They can see me. I'm waving out from the tree side, and I watch a guy hop out the, with the rope all the way down. Then I was sitting there, just kind of really fixated on the second guy that was coming down. And while I'm staring up at the helicopter. The first guy kind of surprised me in the woods. He kind of like was 
boom, right on top of me and almost scared me a little bit. And so he was right there and he looked at me, I looked at him and he just stuck his hand out and I stuck mine out and we just didn't say a word, but we just shook hands. And then the second gentleman, uh, uh, his name was Nicola Bouillard, I think. And Nicola came down and the two of us uh, just sat there for a second. We made some small talk about, they can't believe that I'm not injured after seeing the plane because the plane looked really bad with the tree through it. And they were just very shocked to see that I was just standing up right there. The next thing they said is, can you make it up the hill? There's a clearing at the top that we need to get up to. And I said, yeah, absolutely. At this point, I can, I'll do whatever you need. Uh, What was kind of weird is I'm in this dense forest, but yet they had instructed me that I could take all my belongings with me. So it was like I was at an airport. I had my carry-on suitcase and my briefcase. And, you know, I'm, I got my iPad, I'm vlogging the whole thing. And so I'm hiking and they're helping me. They're like, can I take your suitcase? I'm like, yeah, you can take my suitcase. I'm pretty tired. So we're, the, the question is, do you tip them when you, <laughs> you know? yeah, uh, absolutely. You tip. If I would have, yeah, I should have tipped them actually. I would have given my whole wallet. I would have given them at that point. So we hike up and we're carrying our baggage up the hill. My briefcase, my computer, I still got the same. We're talking on the same computer that went through this crash right now um, as we're having this interview. So we went to the top of the hill. The helicopter came over. First thing that they did when we were up there is they took a big smoke flash out and they they cut it off. So massive pink smoke. Uh, you can see some of that in the, in, the, in the video I put up on YouTube. And they basically send a bucket down for you. So I, I climb into the, the man cage. <laughs> they throw my suitcase and my briefcase right on top of me. And then they just start pulling you up. And that was a pretty, you know, at this point, normally I would have been scared shitless to do something like that, you know, get pulled up into a helicopter. Um, at that point, I was just so happy to be getting pulled up. And it was just breathtaking view. I couldn't believe how big the body water that I avoided looked as I got pulled up. And, and if you were to look at the video online or if you grab a screenshot of that, Scott, you'll see just what that kind of view looked like. It was just awe-inspiring. And so they pulled me up in the helicopter. Then the two gentlemen came up after me. And we started proceeding towards Satil. Uh, the first thing I said is, guys, I need I need water. I think I drank seven bottles of water just in, in, in 60 seconds. And they um, took my vitals, blood pressure, pulse, blood ox. And then I threw a headset on. I was kind of strapped to the gurney there on the medical gurney. They said, you look fine other than dehydration and a lot of bug bites. And then at this point, I'm just you know overjoyed. So, um, you know, I, I related to... Uh, the closest feeling was uh, if you, I've had a few surgeries and that moment when you wake up from a surgery and you know that you made it, there's just the kind of this joy that you have talking to the nurse, talking to the doctor. And I, I kind of had that same level of joy. So I'm just cracking jokes. We're having a great time. And the, the pilots, they're asking about the airplane, like, what kind of plane did you have? And, you know, asking about the avionics and the parachute. And, and we were just a bunch of uh, uh, humans uh, that had been through a a relationship, you know, one where I, I was completely reliant on them to save my life and they had saved my life. And so there's just this bond and relationship in that helicopter as we we're flying back that is hard to describe, you know, what, what that was like. Uh, mostly for me, these guys do it every day. And, but for them, most of their missions are they're, they're, they're seeing mangled bodies in airplanes and usually burnt up from a fire. So I think for them, it was a pretty unique experience as well that I was able to come out there uh, the way I did. So, I mean, it's nothing short of a miracle. I mean, from the, from the, avoiding the, the death on the tree to, um, 
everything falling into place to get out of there in time. And then, you know, like I said earlier, having the resources that were thrown at coming to rescue me is, is why I just felt such a, a compelling feeling to make a public showing of Thanksgiving because lots and lots of people were involved in, in rescuing me and saving my life. So they took me to the airport that I would have flown to, that I was diverting to, uh, Sittil. I was met there with an ambulance and uh, I went in the ambulance. There was a crowds of people, you know, I shouldn't say crowds, but as many people as would be at the airport. I knew, I found out in hindsight, everyone had known what happened. So there had been news reports of a plane that went down, but that the person had a parachute. It wasn't clear that the airplane had a parachute, but that the pilot jumped out of the airplane with a parachute was what everyone was thinking. And so news had gone out that the, everyone knew the search and rescue plane was, was, was me in it. So there was some onlookers and different news media at the hospital when I got there in the ambulance. But they basically taking the hospital, filled out a, uh, a police report, and that was it. I had a colleague come pick me up. He had also heard about it on the news. Um, so when he showed up in the hospital room, seeing me there, filthy, dirty, muddy, uh, he was pretty, pretty uh, taken aback. And he took me to his house. I called the equivalent of the NTSB up there to report the incident. I called a business colleague to f- come pick me up, basically. Fly, can you come fly your plane? I'd like to get home. And so I basically had to wait seven hours for an aircraft to come from Minnesota to, to charter in and come pick me up. So I was fortunate that I was able to late that night hop into an airplane and I just you know jumped in the front seat, co-pilot, and, and we flew back to the U.S. and I got home about three in the morning that morning. Talk about getting back on the horse. I mean, uh, but one of my questions is how, how soon did you fly again after this? And it was pretty much the same day. Same day I was, I, you know, I wasn't pilot in command, but I was there. And uh, I ended up going up by myself, I think a month after. And then there's, you know, so there's definitely anxiety involved in getting back in the same kind of airplane, but it was about a month. And then there, there was there was a moment where I had to make the decision, like, okay, am I going to kind of hang it up here because of the, the anxiety, or am I, I knew that I love to fly, and that's when it kind of solidified in my mind that I'm going to do this for, I'm going to do this professionally. I want to, I want to help others and, and teach others how to fly and, and experience the joy of it, experience the, the wonderful things that personal and general aviation can do for people. So kind of at the same moment in time where I was making a decision to get back on the horse, which for me, you know, hopping into a professional pilot airplane, I wasn't really flying. I just wanted to get home, but some time's passed and you've had a few nights sleep where you're dreaming about it and you're kind of reliving the trauma and stuff like that. And a month later where you're making the decision to go up, you know, by yourself in an airplane is really where more of the decision to kind of get back on the horse happened. And I, I really made the decision at that point that I want to make sure that I do this the rest of my life, as long as, you know, God willing, I'm healthy and, and able to do it. And so, yeah, in addition to still doing work in the mining industry, I'm now um, running a accelerated flight training business. I uh, focus on teaching students really the practical aspects of flying. A lot of what I focus on is the types of things you wouldn't learn in a flight school, like thinking about the train that you're flying over, thinking about you know packing clothing, thinking about what are all the scenarios that can happen if you lose an engine, trying to do the best I can to... Uh, take everything I learned out of that moment and apply it to, to training other pilots to be safe. And hopefully, God, you know, God forbid, a, a similar situation happens, people might have some training ahead of time. You have a unique perspective on planning for something like this, whereas other people might, you know, and that's another chapter in the course, but with you, it's uh, it's from firsthand experience. 
Absolutely. I, I think most pilots, and I was one of them, especially if you're flying quite a bit, you never think you're going to have an engine failure. Like you just, you, you never think it's going to happen to you. So therefore you don't plan as much as you should for it. And statistically, it is a rarity, right? I mean, it is a rarity. Most, most pilots will never experience this. It's very rare. Aviation is, is a pretty safe way to travel, even personal aviation. And the vast, vast majority of incidents are due to, you know, really pilot error, not, not a mechanical failure that, that unexpectedly happens. So it is rare, but it does happen. And even partial failures can happen quite a bit too. So, you know, I had a catastrophic failure where I lost all engine power. But what happens if you have something that breaks in the engine and you have 30% power? Well, if you're prepared for it and, and, you, and you don't freeze and you fly the airplane and you stay proficient at certain things with certain planning, the likelihood of getting down safely is extremely, extremely high. That's one aspect that is, has been very positive coming out of this. The other aspect I'm still trying to figure out and pray about and, and what else can I do with this second chance? And uh, I don't quite have that figured out yet. But that's still an uncompleted part of the story because uh, no doubt I still feel like I was given a chance to to survive that day and avoid that tree instantly killing me and pray to God that uh, that I get guidance and uh, wisdom and inspiration to uh, to serve serve that purpose serve Him in that way someday somehow. Have you talked to the people that rescued you since that day? You know, it's interesting. I, I did talk directly with one of the SAR techs, uh, Nicola. Uh, we, we both did a radio interview in Quebec City maybe a month after the accident. I got to hear his voice and have a little bit of exchange with him. That was really nice. Uh, and then really, uh, really a feel-good story happened after. Um, I got a phone call out of the blue from a Montreal number, and it was a person that works at NAV Canada, the air traffic control facility. And he said, we have a supervisor that's just getting done with training, and she's getting promoted, and she was the person that coordinated your whole search effort. And would you be willing, Matt, to call into a conference room at this time when um, we're about to announce that she's been given this big promotion? I said, absolutely. So, so they gave me the number. They gave me the exact minute to call. And so I called the cell phone, and she picked it up on speakerphone, and I just uh, said, this is Matt. And uh, I want to congratulate you on, on this wonderful promotion and, and thank you for helping save my life. And the kind of, you could hear some, a lot of, a lot of uh, clapping and cheers and, and, and things got a little bit emotional on the phone. And that was uh, the second chance I've had to, to talk to somebody involved. Is the plane still there? It was removed, actually. And so they uh, sent helicopters in to log the trees around it. And they cut all the trees around to have an open spot, and then they sent another helicopter in to pull it out. And it was actually relatively easy to pull out because of the fact the parachute, the, all the straps that the parachute was hooked to, they could just use to yank it out of the woods with a helicopter. I have video. There's there's snippets of it uh, up on my YouTube as well, uh, uh, going back and visiting the airplane and, and meeting a lot of the gentlemen that pulled it out and looking at the engine and looking at the plane and I ended up getting everything. I think the cell phone I'm still using came out of the plane. So, so I lost my cell phone, but it was <laughs> they found it with the plane. I got most of my headsets back, but a porcupine had chewed one of them up to pieces. Animals had obviously been rummaging through the plane. You know, it probably could have been actually repaired and, and airworthy, but the the auction went off with because of the remote location. I think it it ended up going being salvaged out for avionics and parts but you know if it would have been, happened in, in a closer proximity to like a repair center or something that it actually could have been 
fully repaired and, and flown again. But it's uh, uh, November 6, 9 or 9 Romeo Sierra is, uh, is no longer out there. Coming so close to death like that, you know, like you did, how does that affect you from a, like from a mental aspect? Do you do things differently now than you did before? Absolutely. And, and I'm really grateful that this happened to me for that reason. Uh, you know, before this incident, my, my priorities were way out of whack. I, I was uh, very selfishly focused. I, I, you know, maximized my efforts on, on flying when I wanted to um, work and then, uh, you know, living pretty unhealthy, drinking a lot, eating poorly, not exercising. And then whatever time and energy I had left over, which oftentimes wasn't a lot, that was for my wife and kids. And after that, it put everything in a completely different perspective. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for that to happen to me for that reason. I'm grateful. I mean, obviously, I survived. Um, and there's a little bit of stress and bad dreams that come out of it. But every time that that happens and every time I, I talk to people about it like this, I, I am left with feelings of gratitude and just being thankful. And lots of people have bad things like this that happen to them, uh, terrible things. And, and I, I almost feel, I feel guilty that I, I was able to have a traumatic thing happen to me, but it, it turned out the way it did. I know people that have had bad car accidents and uh, some of, you've talked to a lot of them, Scott, you know, they're life-changing injuries and illnesses. And and so I'm sitting here healthy and, and, and I feel bad about that because so many people go through so many more difficult things and so much different adversity. We uh, we all have different adversity in life, and this was one moment that I had to go through for me, and I just pray that there's good that I can pass along from it, and I just try to be as grateful as possible that um, it turned out the way it did, and I'm still here. The, the biggest advice I'd have for anyone that's gone through a traumatic thing is is there is definitely elements of various discretion for people, choice involved. You can choose to let some anxiety and, and fear stay with it, or you can make the choice to to go a different path. Say, for example, what happens a lot of times with uh, with flying. Uh, a student, you know, students might get very scared, have a have a scary experience flying, and lots of students stop flying once they have their first kind of nerve nerve wracking experience. And so, I just try to encourage as many people as I can to. Fear is, is, is oftentimes a, a short-term feeling, an emotion, or something that you can experience, but it doesn't have to define the decisions that you make as much as a lot of people allow it to do. So having that choice, making the choice to, to live life to the fullest, sounds cliche, count, count your blessings, be grateful for everything, and recognize that we all go through our own types of adversity. It's common. I don't, I don't know a single person in the world. I've never met a person that doesn't have a, a tragedy or some serious adversity that they've had to manage in life. So it's a common thing we all share as humans. We have adversity, we have trauma, we have fear. And to a certain extent, not 100%, but to a certain extent, we all have a choice on, on how we move forward after those events happen. If you want to see the video that Matt did immediately after the crash, which includes him getting rescued into the helicopter, you can see that in the show notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 73. And Raw Audio Episode 11 is now live. If you love hearing the actual 911 call audio and the story that goes with it, every Raw Audio episode has three of those. In the new episode... Four very young children run to a neighbor for help. Yeah, what's going on? I just got four kids at my door that says that somebody just killed their mama. 
there's an accidental shooting at a Halloween party. All right. Um, there's a young child here. She has been shot by a firearm. And a homeowner goes outside to confront someone stealing his truck. Okay, so who was it that got shot? The, the person trying to steal the truck. These exclusive raw audio episodes are available to anyone who supports the What Was That Like podcast for just $5 a month. You can do that at whatwasthatlike.com support, and I deeply appreciate it. Now here's a question for you. You probably listen to several podcasts. What would make you immediately unsubscribe from a podcast? That was the question posted recently in our private Facebook group, and we had quite a lively discussion about it. Some of the answers included mouth noises, co-host banter that's unrelated to the podcast topic, hosts that talk about politics on a non-political podcast, and one person even said that she unsubscribed from a show because the host was eating while he did the podcast. I don't think I've ever heard that happen on a podcast, but I'd say that would be a deal breaker for me too. If you'd like to join in on these great discussions we have over in the Facebook group, we'd love to have you. You can join at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. And you should do that right now because pretty soon we're going to set up a Zoom call just for listeners of this podcast. And that's where I'll announce it in that Facebook group. So get in there and make sure you don't miss it. I've got a bunch of great stories lined up for the weeks ahead, and I'm really excited to share them with you. I'll let you in on a little secret, a little behind-the-curtain stuff for the show. Never in my life have I had a problem with sleeping. When my head hits the pillow, I'm out within minutes. But when it's a Thursday night before a Friday new episode day, I'll admit I sometimes have some trouble dozing off because I'm so hyped up about getting that new story out to you. But that's my problem. I can handle it. In the meantime, stay safe. I'll see you in two weeks.